So here we are at the end of our, almost at the end, of our time together, our 10 days together. And I don't know about you, but doesn't it feel like we've been here forever doing this? (laughs) Something about this practice that kind of distorts our sense of time. But I want to take this evening to really step back a bit. We've been so... uh, secluded and, and, and following this through thread of the breath that we can sometimes lose perspective of why are we doing this? And so just a kind of overview about the role of concentration in our practice and then what we do with the concentrated mind. And perhaps from this afternoon you get a bit of a sense of how secluded you have been when you start to open up, right? Does it feel like a lot of energy, a lot of stimulation just in doing some talking and shifting of the schedule? Well, welcome to the world. Uh, The world hasn't changed very much since you've been in here. So that's why we try to prepare you a little with these, these schedules like today. The Buddha talked about four kinds of students, really four modes of progress within our practice. He said there are students who develop fast without any pain, fast but with a lot of pain, slowly but with no pain, or slowly and with a lot of pain. Where do you think you fit in to that? I know I knew where I felt I fit in. It was like slow and struggle and challenge. Really a lot of um, sense of not getting anywhere. And it was really difficult. But something kept me going. It was like practice was like medicine. It didn't taste good, but I knew it was good for me. And something kept me coming back. But I was very judgmental about my practice. You know, where's the insight? Where's the catharsis that I hear everyone other other people talk about or people would be sobbing in the hall or beaming with ecstasy and I'd just be trudging, you know, (laughs) out there another walk, another sit, another breath. And so I had to step back a bit and see what I couldn't really say nothing was not happening because something was keeping me going. Something was actually the hook had come in right from the very first retreat. I did my first retreat in the early 80s, I think it was 1982, with S.N. Goenka in India. It was an incredibly powerful retreat. I didn't have a clue what I was getting into, or even while I was there, what I was doing. But something really spoke to me, even as arduous and as challenging as that 10-day retreat was. I was actually living in India at the time, um, living in Bogaya, lived there for about, not Bogaya, um, Dharamsala, McLeod Gunge, where the Dalai Lama lives above Dharamsala. And my, I'd been traveling with my younger sister, and she had stayed behind in, in McLeod, and I'd gone off to this retreat, which is a whole story and adventure in itself, because I didn't even know where the retreat was going to be held. I, I just knew it was in Jaipur. So it was like, go to Jaipur and start asking people. Where's the, imagine if you said, you know, it's in Marin somewhere. And you just started asking, where's... Actually, Spirit Rock is pretty well known. That would work. But back then... Anyway. Um, so I did this retreat. It was very intense. Came back to where we were living. My sister was there. And she told me later that after that retreat, I was kind to her for two weeks. <laughs> and I never know, is that good or bad? You know, is two weeks of kindness 
you know, and is, what did that say about what I was like before and after? But anyway, it was something shifted, but I wasn't making any particular effort to be kind. There was just a natural sense of tenderness that I'm sure you've all experienced from doing this practice, a, a natural sensitivity. And for me in my practice, even though, you know, I had a, I mean, it was a very difficult retreat. And as I said, I was pretty clueless. But it really, there was a honeymoon period where I was so passionate about practice and doing as much as I could. I, I could. I was living in India. And then as, as my practice team, I'd be doing longer retreats. And then doing long metta and um, samatha practice retreats really began to change my sense of myself. I still think I put in the slow category, but I couldn't not say that something wasn't happening. It really brought out a lot of faith when I felt the deepening of concentration. And what was so amazing was, it was like I was reading an instruction manual that was written 2,600 years ago, the words of the Buddha, and having those experiences you know, not to the same extent, of course, but really feeling that map and that I was finding my way on that map through these practices, particularly of concentration, through metta and anapana, and got a real sense for myself of the potential of training the mind, of training this mind. And training in metta, the doing intensive metta many, for many weeks at a time over a number of years, and uh, all of the concentration practices. And I've said this to a number of people, I really feel these practices do put grooves in the mind. They kind of heighten you know, these wholesome tendencies to metta, to stability, to equanimity, etc. And even whatever the brain waves are that we have, alpha, delta, gamma, I'm not sure, whatever jaggedness they might have, ups and downs, they kind of smooth out a little through this practice. And I could really feel that happening. And so you're here doing that same practice, hearing the instructions from that manual that the Buddha gave us 2,600 years ago, and perhaps beginning your exploration of this path, perhaps you're deeply connected to it, but we're all on this path together, this deepening together. And again, I've said this line a number of times, in this training, we're not practicing to be good breathers. It's not a matter of quantity, how many breaths you took and were noticed, you, you were aware of, but really something deeper. We're not practicing to get necessarily concentrated. You may do, but that's not what we certainly here are really um, stressing. What we're doing here, what we're hoping you get from this retreat is learning how to train your mind how to do this practice, to see for ourselves that this mind, my mind, our mind, is trainable. That if you develop with wise effort these skills, there's a deepening that naturally happens out of this kind of practice. And you mightn't, you know, whatever level of evaluation you are doing about your practice, remember the Buddha always said, this is the gradual path and I would even say the slow path, but it's the steady path. It's the path where we learn for ourselves what works for us, given this map, given these teachings, given this training, what works for us. And 
we live in a culture that wants fast everything, right? Didn't America invent fast food? It's like fast and quality, you know, <laughs> opposite, going in the opposite directions. But anyway, so this sense of, you know, and you could see all of the, if you live here in the Bay Area, in California, wherever, all of these places where there's a lot of offerings. It's always like enlightenment intensives and, you know, get this, this is the way, the quick way, the fast way, the immediate way, the powerful way, the deep way. And we respond to that because who wouldn't want it quicker? But it doesn't necessarily serve us. say this often, I collect meditation cartoons, and I used to have a paltry handful, but now there's quite a lot, because as mindfulness is becoming more mainstream, it's, you know, New Yorker regularly has cartoons on meditation themes, but this is one, I think it was Bizarro, he, there was a scene with a crowd of monks, and a monk standing up on a podium with a megaphone, and the monk leading was saying, what do we want? Mindfulness. When do we want it? (laughs) You're an easy audience. That's the good thing about giving Dharma talks. It doesn't take much to make people laugh. But what I really, I've said this to a number of people already in my meetings, whatever level of concentration, calm, peace, ease, contentment, bliss, whatever, whatever level of that you've developed here, you can't take that with you. You know that, right? You really can't. But what you can take with you is this learning, this training that we've been involved in, this knowing for yourself how to collect and unify the mind, how to balance the factors for yourself, how to work with the hindrances, hopefully a little bit in the context of samatha, but also that can be helpful in our vipassana practice. And I always say, if I had to choose for you whether you had some deep, you know, amazing experience or you really understood that training, I'd take the training any day because I know you can take that with you and you can use that in your further practices. The, good ex- the deep experiences or whatever you consider a good experience, we want to say the worst thing that can happen to a meditator is to have a good experience. Because what do we do? We, we grasp onto it and who, you know, spend five years, ten years trying to get it back, trying to have that repeated. And sometimes, especially as we're evaluating our retreat, we can have a pity party about not having had a pity party. Right? The idea. Jealous of what we think is someone else's jhana jamboree. Oh, they've had, you know, all of these amazing experiences and I've just been plodding along with one breath at a time. We tend to make a lot of projections. Have you noticed that? You know, someone will say one thing in the hall or perhaps a story that a teacher says or something you've read and we make all of these projections and idealizations about it. Everyone here has had challenges. We have all had real challenges in our practice. But that's where we learn. That's actually, you know, the the, um, training part of this. Even experiences of really subtle pity or sukha or calm or steadiness, they are really valuable. 
you can really trust that because you start to learn the terrain and know how to cultivate it. And the other thing that's really important is we can't be good judges of our practice when we're in the middle of it. We really aren't. We're not good judges of most things most of the time, especially of our inner experience or what leads to happiness. There's a whole lot of research on that. But in practice, it really is not until we leave, and sometimes even days or even weeks afterwards, perhaps not until your next retreat, that these skills and these wise efforts come back to you in a helpful way. So again, just a a call not to try to evaluate too much. You, you don't have the perspective yet. It's, it's almost impossible in the middle of the, the practice. Even though a lot of you have talked with appreciation about what you've learned, we still don't really know until, until we leave. But the Buddha talked a lot about training, and that was his big thing, you know, the gradual path. And he would say, I teach those who wish to be trained, who are trainable. He wasn't an evangelist. He didn't go out kind of trying to bring people in. People came to him and said, Bhante, will you teach me? And then he would teach. And I love this description from the night of his enlightenment. Donald and I have talked a little bit uh, in pieces about this story. It's repeated, this passage is repeated a number of times about the concentrated mind. When the mind was thus concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, and steady, and attained to imperturbability, I directed it to the knowledge of recollecting my past lives and knowledge of the destruction of the taints. This concentrated mind with these qualities, I love this, malleable, wieldy, and steady, what enabled him to open this doorway to the vastness of his awakening experience. So malleable means able to be shaped. And this malleability, this fluidity, flexibility, is both a great strength, but as we've said a number of times, you need to be really careful what you put into a concentrated mind. It's very suggestible. So here we've really been secluded and, you know, steeped in Dharma and Dharma training, but we're now at the end of the retreat. So, you know, just to take care, and we'll talk more about this tomorrow in the going home process. And again, why we open up to Vipassana at the end of the retreat, to give you some time to kind of find some steadiness in in this practice. Wieldy means it's responsive. It's often, that word is often used with a tool or a sword, some kind of weapon that we can use in order, in service of our intentions. Um, and so starting to see that we can use this mind and direct it. The mind is an ally. I may have said this line before in my earlier talk, the Buddha said, paraphrasing something like, The untrained mind is worse for you than your worst enemy. The trained mind better for you than your best friend. So this sense of the mind being actually an ally and the mind being responsive, directable. You invite the mind, intend to staying with the breath, and when the mind gets trained, it will do that. Again, it's not completely in our control, lots of conditions, but the more training that happens... um, 
the more responsive the mind can be. I remember being on a, a concentration retreat, the Forest Refuge, working with this teacher who was so helpful for me in describing what I would do at the beginning of a sit to develop, you know, the concentration and the steps and the experiences. And she just said, you know what that experience is. Don't take 10 or 15 minutes. Just go there. You know, just invite the mind in 10. And I'm like, what do you mean? I have to, you know, do all my settling in and relaxing. And she said, no, just go there. And I found I could. Not all the time. The conditions had to be right. But just this responsiveness of the mind when it's well-trained, when it's wieldy, and then steady. We've talked about this quite a bit when we open to more complex objects like the three characteristics that we've talked about, that Donald talked about last night. The mind that's trained in this way can be with something that otherwise it might slip off or recoil from or find confusing. It can stay with this, with some equanimity, some one-pointedness, ekagata. And so this is the training that we've been doing here to develop these capacities to whatever extent, different for all of us, different for all of us. But again, what we're hoping is you get to know how to collect and unify the mind, and then what it's like to really open up. And again, we've said this before, but I'm kind of reviewing that on our kind of normal retreats where we teach, you know, vipassana, a range of practices, opening up to all of the six sense doors, many people think they're doing vipassana, but really they're doing samatha, they're being with the breath, but not always in a very skillful way. They're kind of hanging on to the breath, and they'll go to other objects kind of to, you know, get rid of them, wait to like, you know, wait them out, and then come back to the breath. So there's bit like the spider at the center of a web, you know, goes out and deals with something that comes back to its little nest there in the center. Um, and there can also be a reluctance to let go of the breath without even realizing it, you know, that these other things are disturbances that are happening. So here we really want to um, see if we can explore what it's like to really sustain with skillfulness, with the breath, with wise effort. And then again, a little bit, hopefully in this last day or so, you got to sense what it was like to really open up and let the attention be untethered, open to all of the changing experiences. Again, on a retreat I did where I'd done, I've been doing, I think I said this already, I did about 10 years where most of the retreats, long retreats I did, were concentration practice. So after doing a number that were just concentration, I decided I should do one where I did two weeks of concentration and then a month of um, open practice. So I, that was my intention. And then the two weeks came around. I'd been doing to practice. You know, I had some experience. I'd been doing it for, for a number of retreats, so had some sense of, of the terrain. And it was totally self-motivated. I had made this determination, you know, on this certain day I would switch. And that day came. What did you feel like yesterday? You know, I felt like I'd been in this warm, cozy room. The fire had been crackling. I had my shawls and, you know, cup of tea. And someone says, you have to go open the door and there's a wild, raging storm outside. And you have to go out into the storm. And so I was very reluctant. It felt like, no, you know, it's so cozy in here. and so simple. But 
I'd made this determination, and we've said again and again, concentration is in order to, in order to open to the whole range of experience, to insight. What I actually discovered, and again, I don't know if you uh, had any sense of this, that it was actually quite lovely. There was an ease and a freedom in opening the attention up, but because my mind was relatively clear and steady, what I actually noticed in a way I'd never noticed before were the seven factors of awakening that Susie spoke about the other night. I'd heard that list and I'd had sort of, you know, bits of sense of them, but out of the concentration practice, their impact and their flavor was really clear and accessible. And there was a a lightness of mind and a balance of mind that was, again, this is part of the confidence building that I developed out of doing these practices. So we learn what a collected and unified mind is. And again, it's not narrow, it's not tight, hopefully not too much striving, hopefully at times no striving at all. And the spaciousness and the softness that can be um, around there. And again, that's one of the ways, I've said this before, of just this view where you step outside and the mind just kind of soars out into the distance. But we can be unified with that vastness. Philip talked about the uh, Arupa Jhanas, the uh, uh, immaterial um, planes of absorption and that infinite cons- infinite space and then infinite consciousness meets it. We have a taste of that when the mind is um, that spacious. And then the simplifying of perceptions is secluding the mind. I'll talk more about that. And how to do that, again, knowing what supports that. How do we relate to the breath? How do we relate to hindrances? Knowing that for ourselves. Ehipasiko, come and see for yourself. Be a lamp unto yourself. These are the words of the Buddha again and again. Most of us have such a strong tendency to look outward for affirmation, for reassurance, for guidance, and all that is helpful. But ultimately, we have to be our own guide, our own teacher. and again, in the genre of meditation cartoons that I've spoken about, there's a sub-genre that's the guru cartoon. And it it's, has very clear characteristics. The mountains are triangles with a wavy line that means snow. Um, there's usually some kind of cave drawn or ledge. And the guru is usually a man, I think always a man, white beard, loincloth, cross-legged. And the seeker is always someone with a knapsack and they've just kind of poked their head over the edge of the ledge. And they've obviously asked the question that you ask the guru. And in this version of it, the guru actually is sitting at a computer as he's looking at the seeker coming over the edge. And he says, until this year, I couldn't find the meaning of life either, but then I switched search engines. So this, you know, wanting of affirmation, wanting, you know, answers. Isn't there a secret teaching? Isn't there something you're not telling us that would make this easier, quicker, better, deeper? No. We're telling you what we know. And so many times in these kind of, in practice meetings that we have, someone will come in and, and report an experience they had some time ago often, and then say, what was that? I'm like, 
I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know. But then the next question is, is that normal? And I, I, I think I'm, I don't know if I'm giving away something there, but we always say yes. <laughs> because you had it, so it must be in the range, right? So, just so you know. But the main thing is that you explore for yourself. And again, you know, I'm, I'm joking a little, but we can't really know unless we're tracking you. You know, people can have all kinds of experiences in meditation, blissful and challenging and opening and uh, energetic and sublime. But we, you know, need to kind of be along there with you to, to track it. So we can just approximate. But you developing your own sense of this path, what the map is and what it is for you, so helpful. One of the things I'm emphasizing now, and I think I said it right at the beginning, oh, those many days ago, is this practice always goes to simplicity and stillness. More about letting go than accumulating. More about renunciation and simplicity than um, attaining certain things. And so around our relationship to the breath itself, it tends to simplicity. And I've talked a number of times about how, you know, one of the things I think is helpful for us on this retreat is that we understand this spectrum of practices. At one end are what we call vipassana or insight, where there's a lot of openness and changing objects, dhamma-vichaya, investigation, interest. There can often be a lot of energy there at that level, that kind of practice. And then at the other end, samatha. Stillness, simplicity, single-pointed, one object. And what we hope is that you get a sense of how you move the dial, the lever, from one to the other with, with, with skillfulness, with wise effort. When one is more appropriate, helpful to do vipassana, you need to get the mind collected, but then you find you're getting a little dull, so you open up, or the hindrances are coming, so you open more to vipassana. And so this responsive, gentle movement. But just on this retreat, I realized there's another axis on, axis on this, the vertical axis, axis, that's axis concentrate, axis. And for some reason, up is soft focus, simplicity, stillness. And then at the other end, the other end of that axis is crispness, detail, um, uh, sort of, it's just like micro and macro. And again, so it makes it more, I guess, just two-dimensional. I wish it were three-dimensional, but two-dimensional. And again, we move, we can move with skillfulness on that plane. So as an example, that guided meditation I did with the beginning, middle, end, in-breath, beginning, middle, end, out-breath, really tends, even though it was inviting Vitaka and Vichara and, and a, a Samatha kind of practice focused on the breath. It had a flavor of Vipassana, the change of that, you know, the sensations, the differing sensations of beginning, middle, end, transition, beginning, middle, end, fading, pause. Um, and so that's like a Samatha meditation but with, with a clarity of detail. And so again, just an example. Ultimately, in this practice, it tends to simplicity. This, the, the, the essential nature of breath, 
this, even you could say the stillness or simplicity of the breath. Again, in Vipassana, we might notice all of the textures of the breath and the sensations and the um, warmth and coolness of the breath, movement of the belly, whatever. But in samatha practice, it heads towards simplicity. It heads towards stillness. And so, again, this might be subtle, but some of you might have a sense of the breath is still being the breath, but it it gets more subtle, right? So our mindfulness has to kind of quieten down to be with that as a very simple object. But we can also attune to the still aspects of the breath, the unity of the breath, the breath as um, in, the, in its essence, you could say. And as that develops, what we start to tune into, the stillness is not even so much in the breath, because the breath can come and go, be very subtle. It's the awareness itself that's knowing the breath, that's still. And that's what's being deepened. And that's a big part of the training. And so it gets very subtle, this practice. And we can't force that kind of subtleness, but just wanting to keep highlighting that that's the direction this practice goes, into more more stillness, more simplicity, more quiet, more calm. And the mindfulness tracking with that and able to stay steady even when the breath gets so imperceptible. You don't even can feel anything. But the awareness has been trained to rest in the, the anapana spot, as some teachers would say, wherever you're residing with the attention. The mind is so still, it stays, whether the breath is there or not, breath sensation or not. So I, I gave that um, handout a couple of days ago because um, I actually really wanted it for this talk. I'm going to use it a little in this talk in talking about the role of concentration, but I handed it out earlier because we're using a lot of these terms and lists and I just thought it would be helpful for you to have. Again, you don't need to have it for the talk if you've taken it away, but that's I wanted you to have it to have this big picture of the role of concentration and this direction that I just started talking about. And I want to expand on that. Where's my copy here? Um, And I usually uh, try to make the concentration um, in bold so you can pick it out where it is and what are the preceding factors and what are the subsequent factors. And even though I put it in lists, that's just what you do with words, it's not, some of these lists are very limited linear, sort of cumulative, but they all have feedback loops, you know, they're not like, you know, you go through one stage one and then you move on and you drop stage one and you're in stage, they, they inform each other um, and there's feedback loops. But the pattern that what I started to notice about them is there's often what I've said is this kind of bell curve where there's foundational experiences, mental factors, qualities of mind, or even practices, experiences that are somewhat energetic and intentional. And so a classic is the jhana factors, vitaka and vichara, we've talked about. They're kind of the engines of the practice, the aiming and sustaining. We can intend those. We can't 
we can intend them. We can't always control them. You know, the mind will slip off or we'll get lost, excuse me, or whatever. But we can create some intention around them. And there's other examples of where, you know, even in the factors of awakening, mindfulness, we can come back into mindfulness. Investigation, just like Donald led, led us through this morning, we can, we can, with intention, investigate experience. And then there's often a peak experience. It's often pity, our old friend pity, um, absorption or rapture. But then what's important to see is it always moves to more subtle states. In the jhana factors, to sukha, to happiness, factors of awakening, to pasadi, to tranquility. So this pattern is really instructive for us. We can get so transfixed by the exciting part phases of that journey. And I said, I think in my other talk, pity especially, it's a classic one. It's just a signpost. And if the signpost says San Francisco, 25 miles or whatever it is, and you fall in love with the signpost, you're never going to get to San Francisco. And if you start adorning the signpost and worshipping the signpost, you're definitely not going to get to San Francisco. So it is a signpost. But if we do have that relationship to it, it can be a dead end and certainly a detour. So we have to be always... Uh, I always make these... Um, statements and I have to retract. We have to be interested or, or have the map that it gets more subtle, allowing the sukha um, to become more in the forefront. And again, we can't control this. We can't, you know, you know, may sukha happen or something. Sometimes you can, but we have to do that with skill. Um, but just that it gets more subtle as we get less fascinated by the flashy states or the energy that's happening, really helpful that it gets more quiet. And then it nearly always turns, turns to some form of wisdom or insight. The concentrated mind leads to insight. And so this map, this big map, I think is really helpful for us to have a sense of foundational factors that take time to develop. And we can't shortcut them. You know, and they take longer than we wish they would. They take longer than we think they should. We take longer than everyone else is taking. This is just the nature of this deep practice. But to see the value of those, that commitment to those energetic, intentional phases of the practice, the, and then, as Susie, the word Susie's been using, the emergent factors, the more subtle, and then the more subtle like sukha that can come out of that. Um, And then we take that mind and turn it to other experiences. All of you have developed a deeper level of of calm, of some sense of well-being. It may have fluctuated, may have been just for moments, but just in the meetings I've had with people, some sense of this terrain. And just as we did this morning, the classic practice is to take that concentration and turn to insight, particularly the three characteristics. And these are challenging characteristics. They don't sound like good news, right? Impermanence, suffering, and not self, right? And so the mind naturally might get confused or pull away or you know, make stories about um, 
the concentrated mind has the capacity to stay steady, to see clearly these marks of existence, these, these characteristics of existence. Working with pain, it's so natural that we don't like it and that we pull away. And again, I'm not talking about now you're concentrated, you know, really time to work with pain. No, but we can develop more capacity for bringing equanimity and care to the movements of sensations in the body and particularly strong sensations. The same with emotions. Again, we so easily get lost in our stories and the pushes and pulls of fear or sadness or lust or um, resistance. And the steady mind can help us to really see those movements clearly. And then the mind itself, it's our hardest object because it's so slippery, so quicksilver fast. And the place of the most identification, the mind, our thoughts, and thoughts, again, they're so fleeting, but they shape our world if we don't bring mindfulness to them. And then even stepping back, consciousness itself, awareness itself, the capacity to know the knowing, very subtle, but it takes, the steady mind has that capacity. So we take this concentrated mind and use it, malleable, wieldy, and steady in the service of whatever practice we might choose to do. Any meditation practice takes some degree of concentration. And so we learn how to have this flow between collecting, steadying, unifying the mind, opening up, turning to, directing out of wise intention. And the jhana factors that for many of you may have been new, but or perhaps you said, oh, that's what that is, or that's what the kind of map is there. In any meditation practice that you do to some degree or depth, you'll find the jhana factors somewhat at play, even if you're not intending towards jhana. But just to access concentration, as we've talked about, this potential of the mind just to be really steady, to be really unperturbed, not so um, bothered by the hindrances, some version of the jhana factors are are, are at play there. And the sweetness that we can find here to actually give ourselves permission to have contentment or ease, even pleasure or happiness at times, again, not all the time, but opening to that, aware of that, so helpful. So in this, the, the list, the list, the many lists that I put on there, I could have put many more. The Buddha talked again and again about concentration samadhi and the, and the jhanas and, and how valuable they are, so many suttas. But, as we keep saying, always as not an end in itself, as a means to an end. It has benefit in the here and now, and as I said before, I think it can have benefit in an ongoing way. It might be very subtle, though, but it does have benefit um, in, an, in its capacity to bring a sense of well-being, the steadiness of mind in our practice. But again, we've said it doesn't uproot the defilements, the calaces, the torments of mind, the poisons. For that to happen, 
we need to turn to wisdom or insight. And it's why concentration isn't at the end of any of the lists except the Eightfold Path, which is often depicted as a circle. So it's not really at the end there. And the shorthand for the Eightfold eightfold Path is Sila Samadhi Panya, where ethical conduct develops the meditative qualities, including samadhi, and then that leads to wisdom. But particularly in the Eightfold Path, it's really much more of a hologram where all are really needed for our path to develop. And so, again, I thought it was helpful. So you saw all the different ways uh, Buddha talked about concentration being developed and then the different places it was directed onto. So a classic one is at the bottom, the Anapanasati Sutta was mentioned this morning where the breath, Anapana just means in and out breath, in and out breathing, using attention to the breath the Buddha said, actually fulfills all four foundations of mindfulness, the satipatthana, just through the breath in this um, 16 steps for um, tetrads of the Anapanasati Sutta, all the way to liberation, liberating the mind, step 12, and then uh, the, the uh, embodiment of that. And then another list that I often give a whole talk on, I just want to touch on briefly here, transcendent dependent origination or sometimes transcendent dependent arising really is another great map that I'll go into. But one of the um, things they say about insight is it goes more deeply into a concentrated mind. It's just like you've made a fertile field then when the seeds or the plant is planted, it can really take root. It can really have impact. It can really grow. It's kind of like concentration is like the, the, the wind under our wings or upping the wattage of a lamp. You know, you can, once you can just turn a dial and increase the magnification. Did you have any sense of that today? Some more clarity in your seeing, in your Vipassana practice? Yes? One person, no, two, okay, no, a few. Yeah, so just to, but to notice that, that the steadiness really helped us see more clearly. So this um, whole teaching, Transcendent Dependent Origination, there's 12 links or steps, so it's kind of a mirror image of dependent origination, which is the depiction, again, often depicted in a a wheel of the, movement we do again and again, starting from ignorance through craving to suffering and then around and around and around again. And transcendent dependent origination, even it's not as central or um, repeated in the text as dependent origination, but Bhikkhu Bodhi, great scholar and teacher, declares it tremendously important because it begins right where we are and shows us the whole map of practice and shows us both the conditioned nature of experience, but if we know the conditions that are supportive of the future steps, we can actually engage in that with some intentionality. So very important. And in these lists same as dependent origination, it's not causal. It's not that, say, faith leads to joy, but rather it's conditional. When faith is like this, joy is like this. 
And so our practice is, you know, cultivating faith so it leads to the to, to joy, to Pomoja, and on and on in that link, in that list. And when samadhi gets developed, after, again, this is the classic one where it goes through some energizing. Well, I like it that it, it begins with suffering. But what's different about suffering in dependent origination, we just keep making the same mistake over and over again. You know, we have the chance of breaking off the wheel, breaking the links, um, and whole teaching about that. But here suffering, instead of leading to more suffering, leads to faith. And that's a beautiful transition. How does it do that? We find a path, first noble truth, leading to second, third, and fourth noble truth, the path, the noble eightfold path. So suffering is just the human condition. So it's, that's what I mean about it, starting right where we are, and then goes through these beautiful qualities that we've often talked about, joy, rapture, pasadi, tranquility, sukha, happiness, then to concentration, and then this turning to insight, yata, bhuta, nyanadasana, knowledge and vision of things as they are. And this is seeing clearly. It's a, a long hand for vipassana a long hand for seeing clearly. All of the wisdom teachings would be included in that. The three characteristics, the four noble truths, dependent origination, karma. And when it says knowledge and vision, it means not of the mind. It means we really get it. We see so clearly, so deeply. It's a penetrative, penetrative, penetrative kind of knowledge, not conceptual. And so it changes us. That's the power of insight. It changes how we understand the world. And then it leads to this next step, Nibida. This is a really interesting place. From seeing clearly, Nibida used to be translated as revulsion or disgust. And I always thought, hmm, touch of aversion there, revulsion or disgust. And so Bhikkhu Bodhi, acknowledges that that was not a good translation and now uses, and many, many teachers who know Pali do, disenchantment, and I love that. Disenchantment, breaking the spell that happiness is to be found in getting more stuff. So this disenchantment. And there's a whole, you know, again, if this disenchantment and then dispassion, viraga. And raga literally means passion or lust. And it's, when the Buddha talks about this term, it's always in the form of craving that's going to lead to suffering. That's what we're releasing. You know, we need passion. We need, there's another word, chanda. We can have dharma chanda, you know, passion, um, cultivation of the dharma. But this kind of dispassion is letting go of the craving kind of lustful, um, where we're just lost in that um, force of wanting. And so nibida and then dispassion, we're breaking the spell or the, tr- or the, or the trance of that. And there's, as I said, a lot of um, skillful teachings about this stage of practice. And I like Andy Olensky. He's got a whole paper on nibida where he said the most literal meaning is something like without finding. And he said there's a story in the text that usefully illustrates the meaning of this most important of terms. 
A dog stumbles across a bone that has been exposed to the elements for many months and is therefore bleached of any residual flesh or marrow. The dog gnaws on it for some time before he finally determines that he is not finding any satisfaction in the bone and he thus turns away from it in disgust. It is not that the bone is intrinsically disgusting. It is rather that the case of the dog's raging desire for meat just will not be satisfied by the bone. He is enchanted by the prospect of gratification as he scrapes away furiously at the bone, but when he finally wakes up to the truth that the bone is empty of anything that will offer him satisfaction, he becomes disenchanted and spits it out. So it's that not finding things that used to entrance us, maybe still do, but we see them clearly that they're not going to give us the satisfaction that we thought what they would, a project that we were taking up, some idea of an experience that we really need to have, even some relationships, you know, when we know they're not going to work out and it's like wise to actually disengage from that. You know, imagine just remembering all the things that you used to crave for, How long ago do you have to go back to think of things that were so important to you? And now do you want them? I mean, happiness when you were 14 years old. Would you still want whatever that was? You know, happiness was coming home from school and turning on Gilligan's Island. You know, maybe now that would be so refreshing as a simpler kind of life. But I remember visiting my family in Australia have lots of nieces and nephews, and it was about 10 or 10.30 at night, I was getting ready for bed, and my niece, who was about 20, was getting dressed up to go out, clubbing. And it was just like, no, you know? And I didn't have to go, oh, I'm giving up clubbing. (laughs) Not that I ever did, but... It was really no interest in something that she was obviously, you know, really wanting to do. And so sometimes there can be a little bit of sadness or even poignancy at this, but it's really often a relief that you can turn your attention to things you know will bring you happiness, you know will bring you well-being. Whether it's on that list of the Buddha's list of what it what are skillful for lay people, which includes our families and our possessions and our livelihood, that we take great care there. But these things that distracted us or obsessed us, when we finally see their true nature, we actually just easily let go. It's not a throwing away or an aversion or a having to give up or enunciation. You want to let go. There's a relief there. As Munindraji, um, famous Indian teacher, would say, we talk about letting go. It's going, you know, just let it go because it's going. (laughs) Things are changing all the time, as Donald was pointing to. And we start to discover this higher happiness, this deeper sense of well-being, not so dependent on conditions, not so dependent on these ideals or projections that we keep making for where happiness is going to be, but really trusting and turning more to this inner peace, inner happiness. And as the Buddha would say, ultimately the highest happiness that he discovered and countless numbers of people have discovered 
since then using his teachings. And so all of these lists go to some version of that, these different terms of liberation, emancipation, um, uh, cessation, fading away, relinquishment. They're all different terms and, and framings for this freedom of mind and heart that we can taste here and now because I think the simplest definition for us is the mind and heart that's free of greed, aversion, and delusion. That nothing needs to be added and nothing taken away. And perhaps you've had a taste of that in your practice previously or even on this retreat. It can be very simple, that feeling of completeness, nothing more, nothing less, the mind still clear, collected, at peace. We can take this. We can taste this. Even if it's momentary, this is the faith that can build the um, verified faith that really is onward leading on this path. And so there are amazing maps here that we've been given. There's no one right way. There's no now it should look like this. Each of us has to find our way. Which map, which place, where we are. Be very responsive, very intuitive. You know, use the maps. We need the maps. The maps are incredibly helpful. Guides are incredibly helpful. Sangha is incredibly helpful. But, and we, but we need to start where we are. Bhikkhu Bodhi says there's only two things you need to be successful on this path. You need to start and keep going. The shorthand, when I keep talking about the heart and this awakening, we often talk about this, that what we're developing are these two wings of the bird, wisdom and compassion. You can really see these two coming together in these maps. The wisdom opens to the truth of reality the three characteristics, it knows suffering, it knows how challenging life is, how difficult it can be. But the heart that knows that, the natural response is compassion, is kindness. I'm remembering the words of Arjun Suchito, unless that I quoted on that, my first talk, unless you bring the heart along with you, along with us, the, the path is dry, it's not fully embodied. And so the natural expression of this collected mind that sees clearly is compassion, is this expression of caring and connectedness. And how we live in the world, again, is far more important than any state of bliss or concentration. It's how it impacts us and this possibility of, of waking up, of clearer heart, clearer mind and a more open heart. And all of the teachings reflect back on each other, circle back on each other. Wherever you start, the whole path can open up. But as Bhikkhu Bodhi says, start and keep going. And this is the direction. This path leads to more freedom, more happiness, well-being and contentment. So I want to just finish... um, with a poem that I saw carved into a stone wall 
in the Lawrence S. Rockefeller Preserve up in the Grand Tetons. And it's a poem by... Um, oh, I didn't write her name down. Terence, someone... I'll, I'll read the poem. Oh, I should have... I thought I had it in my notes. It's called A Meditation on Phelps Lake. A feather floats on Phelps Lake, a cradle of light rocking with the breeze. Wind speaks through pines, light animates granite. An eagle soars, its shadow crosses over us. All life is intertwined. We see the great peaks mirrored in the water, stillness, wholeness, renewal. Nature quiets the mind by engaging with an intelligence larger than our own. Reflection leads us to restoration. Mindful of different ways of being, our awareness as a species shifts. We recognize the soul of the land as our own. The path of wisdom invites us to walk with a humble heart. So let's let the words settle into stillness and silence. So thank you for your attention. Susie just reminded me or told me the name of the poet is Terry Tempest Williams. Beautiful poem of the vastness of nature and then the stillness that it invites in our minds and our hearts. So we have, we're on our usual schedule now, a half hour for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.